I encourage you, if you would, take out your outline, if you would. And uh, I'm glad that you fill in these notes. I think, Lily, you do a good job, right, filling in the blanks, okay? So, Lily, you're going to have to write really fast today. I just want to warn you, because we got a lot of things to talk about. And uh, I want you to be ready as well as we uh, kick off this introduction to Second Peter. And uh, it's a great book. I'm looking forward to going through it. But we need to get the context. We need to get the background. We need to get the understanding of what we're going to be looking at as we go through verse by verse in this amazing book. First of all, fast facts. Who is the author? The Apostle Peter is the author. And you say, what's the big deal about that? Well, there's been a lot of challenges over the years to whether Peter authored this book, Second Peter. It's more sharply disputed than any other New Testament book, even though the book starts out in chapter 1, verse 1, with his name listed as the writer. One of the things that they challenge his, whether he was the author, was his lack of personal references to himself in the letter. The lack of personal references to himself in his letter. There isn't sufficient evidence, they say, that Peter refers to himself enough in the book to consider him the author. Second, the early church was slow to accept 2 Peter as inspired and include it in the canon of Scripture. I know we're going to go a little deep on some of these things, and if you uh, aren't that interested, we'll tune that out for now, but I just want to give some of these uh, responses. The early church was slow to accept 2 Peter as inspired and include it in the canon of Scriptures. There was silence before the church father Origen talks about Second Peter, and that's taken as a strong denial of Peter being the author of this book. The early church fathers didn't uh, talk, to, talk about this until Origen mentioned it, and he lived from 185 to 253 A.D., so almost 170 years after it was written before anybody acknowledged that this book was part of the canon of scriptures or was to be considered inspired. Thirdly, the issue of historical problems were raised. When Peter refers to Paul's letters in 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, which we'll talk about later, it represents a time when these letters were already collected and made part of the canon, thus long after Peter would have lived. So this person who's writing, uh, it wouldn't have been Peter. It would have been several centuries later. The false teachers mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 were second century Gnostics who were false teachers. That's what the critics say. The critics argue that Christ's prediction of Peter's death in John chapter 21 and verse 18 and Peter referenced in 2 Peter 1, 14 was not written in Peter's lifetime. That these were written way after Peter had passed on. Critics say that Peter depend upon the book of Jude to write 2 Peter. If this was Peter who was the author, he would not have uh, borrowed from a non-apostolic source. That's what the critics say. And lastly, the critics point to the differences in style and vocabulary between 1st and 2nd Peter. The Greek in 1st Peter was polished and very sophisticated. 2nd Peter, it was very coarse and had difficult grammatical construction of the sentences. 2nd Peter, critics say, could not have been written by a fisherman from Galilee. He would not have had the level of knowledge about the Greek culture. And the last attack on the Peter having the, being the author of this book, the doctrinal themes found in 1 Peter are absent in 2 Peter. And we'll see why that is in just a moment. So here's evidences for 
Peter being the author of this book. First of all, there are plenty of references personally about Peter in 2 Peter. In the Bible Knowledge Commentary from Dallas Theological Seminary, it says it's ironic that this letter, whose authorship has been so disputed, begins with a textual problem concerning the spelling of its author's name. Some manuscripts have the common Greek spelling, S-I-M-O-N, whereas others have the direct transliteration, or the word taken directly from the Hebrew, of Simeon, S-Y-M-E-O-N. The best textual evidence, these writers say from Dallas Theological Seminary, supports the more unusual Hebrew spelling used elsewhere only in Acts 15.14. This detail provides support for the authenticity of Peter being the author for an imposter probably would have used the more widely common accepted spelling of the day. In 2 Peter 1.14, Peter shares that he's not long for this earth. And Jesus predicted his death by crucifixion in John chapter 21 and verse 18. In 2 Peter 1.16-18, Peter describes being one of the three apostles predicted or, or who witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. They're up on the mountain with the Elijah and Moses in Matthew 17. In 2 Peter 3, Peter makes mention of a previous letter that he writes to his readers. And in 2 Peter 3.15, Peter uses the term beloved as he did in 1 Peter 2.11 and 4.12. And it's interesting, though, the subject matter is different. The language is similar in style as 1 Peter. Another evidence that Peter was the author... Is always, he's, that the authorship of 2 Peter has always been attributed to Peter by the early church fathers. It's true, there was a period of time where there wasn't mention made, but when the early church fathers, as I mentioned, Origen mentioned it, uh, then it was accepted that it was inspired and part of the canon of scriptures. Justin Martyr was another church father who used the term false teacher and that Greek word had never been used up to that time, except, as many scholars say in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The allusions to 2 Peter by the church fathers do not prove that Peter wrote 2 Peter, but they remove the objection that the alleged lack of internal support or discussion of the book rules out a date in Peter's lifetime. The church fathers believed early on in church history that Peter was the author and never questioned it. And it's only been in recent times, late 1800s, early 1900s, that liberal scholars have questioned Peter's authorship of 2 Peter. Thirdly, the book of 2 Peter was considered scripture by the 4th century, along with the other books of the Bible. <clears throat> Excuse me, other writings of Peter were rejected as non-canonical. For example, he wrote the Gospel of Peter and the preaching of Peter, and he wrote several other books that were not considered inspired and part of Scripture. And Peter was aware of some of Paul's writings, but probably not the entire collection of Paul's letters that Paul wrote mainly to the churches. You remember Paul wrote to the Ephesians, to the Thessalonians, and to others. And as he wrote those letters, he had each and every one of them not only read them, but pass them on to other churches to be read in that area as well. And here's an example from Colossians 4.16. And when this letter, Paul said, has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans 
and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Peter may have known about the circulation of these letters and was aware of them. So it was not wrong for Peter to put Paul's writings on par with Scripture equal to the Old Testament. Those who wrote in the New Testament knew that they were writing under <clears throat> excuse me, divine inspiration. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul said, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The fourth evidence for Peter being the writer of 2 Peter is the book of Jude. The book of Jude was written after 2 Peter. Conservative Orthodox scholars make the case that Jude was written between 67 and 80 AD, later than 2 Peter, so Peter could not have used Jude's writings as a source for his writings. It's also interesting that Peter uses future tense verbs in his uh, letter as he talks about false teachers, but Jude talks about false teachers using the present tense verbs because they were already in the church at that time. So there's some evidences for and against Peter being the author. But we believe, I believe that Peter definitely was the author of this book. So what was the date of the writing of this book? Well, 64 to 68 AD. It was written shortly before Peter was crucified upside down in 68 AD. It was written within a year, a year after he wrote 1 Peter. Peter may have already been in prison in Rome as he writes this, and he was awaiting his execution by Nero. Nero died shortly after, I think it was 68 AD, and Peter was one of the last ones that he executed. Who was it written to? It was written to Gentile and Jewish Christ followers. Now, Peter doesn't name who his second letter is written to. <clears throat> it was most likely written to the same people as 1 Peter was written to. In 2 Peter 3.1, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved, and both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Notice that he makes reference to the beloved in both letters, so we assume he's writing to the same audience. Well, the theme or the purpose of this book, there's four blanks to fill in, to call Christians to grow in the grace. Grace, grace is the first blank. To grow in the grace and the knowledge is the second blank. To grow in the grace and the knowledge of Christ, their Savior, in order that they can thirdly discern. Discern is the third blank. That they can discern false teaching and live in anticipation is the last blank. Anticipation of the Lord's return. It's interesting to know that the word know or knowledge appears in 2 Peter 13 times. We see five times a description of Jesus as Savior, and that's a lot. More than any other book, I believe, in the New Testament. Peter's first letter was written to comfort and instruct Christ followers on how to live in a world that was persecuting Christianity. The second letter is written to tell the followers of Christ to be aware, to be alert to the false teachers coming in among God's flock and to repudiate them. This book of 2 Peter is vivid and a clever depiction of false teachers 
only comparable to the magnitude of the book of Jude, that little book, one chapter long. It's also written the second letter to encourage Christ followers to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the truth, the truth of Jesus Christ. That's how he closes the book in 2 Peter 3.18. He's all about the truth. In John 17.3, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You have in your notes there the key verses in 2 Peter 3, 17 through 18. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So that gives us the background, the context, and as we turn now to today's message, as stated earlier, some liberal scholars have challenged the authorship of 2 Peter being written by him. It's a unique letter. It's uh, considered along with Jude, kind of in the dark corner of the New Testament. These two books are not often preached on, not often studied in small groups, or quoted in sermons. But we ignore the letter of 2 Peter to our detriment, especially in these last days, in this church age that we live in right now. Peter was near the end of his life, according to 2 Peter 1.14. So he's exposing false teachers and giving examples so that as the generations of Christ followers who will come after, they will know how to expel and repudiate these false teachers from the church. Peter wrote it so that you and I could discern spiritual deception. Discern it. We understand it. We'd see it because it's very subtle. Notice that Peter first shares about the truths that we need to know and live in in chapter 1. This is how he began 1 Peter as well. Paul does this as well. He lays out the doctrinal issues, the position we have in Christ. And then in chapters 2 and 3 in this book, he goes on to show us the difference to show us the contrast of false teachers. The purpose Peter has in this book is to contrast the truth with the deceptions by those who desire to create a following and lead people into bondage and deception while twisting and misrepresenting the truth. He wants Christ followers to know the truth so well that they can spot a fake, a counterfeit truth immediately. This book and the book of Jude are so relevant for today. In a day when teenagers and people tell me that if they read it on the internet, it must be true, we need some discernment. The news is filled with polls and popularity votes. And I remind people that we live in a republic, a representative government, not led by the popularity of the polls and legislate by those things. You can't legislate from that perspective. Part of the reason we need to read this book is the ignorance of people who are not reading and studying God's word. Hosea chapter 4 verse 6 says, My people are destroyed for the lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. The lack of discernment among Christ followers and the lack of pastors and teachers giving their people tools to be discerning. Churches and pastors are not preaching the whole counsel of God. They're not calling out false teaching and false teachers. As we deal with social issues and as they intersect the Bible, we need to speak on those things, whether that fits well with the popular culture or not. 
Many churches and pastors ignore false teaching and they tolerate it. They even embrace it. Jesus warned against the damage false teachers bring on God's flock. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 on the screen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly you are ravenous wolves. Or inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And notice what Jesus says, thus you will recognize them by their fruits, by their behavior, by the results of what they do. So let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 for our scripture reading. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 and 2. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And may God add his blessing at the reading of his word this morning. So first thing, as we continue looking at your outline, who is the author? Well, we already know it's Peter. We've talked about that. And they use here in the English Standard Version, Simeon, which is the transliterated uh, word from or name from the Hebrew. But who is this guy? How does he describe himself? First of all, a bond servant. He is a bond servant. We see, once again, the humility of Peter as he began his first letter. He placed his submission under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you and I, if we really get down to it, you and I, we are slaves to someone or something in our lives. Just like I believe that every person who lives on planet Earth worships something. We are slaves to someone or something. Paul makes that clear in Romans 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you're slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? To which are you a slave to? He gives you a contrast. The Greek word here is doulos, which literally means bond servant. A bondservant was someone in that culture who was severely lower than anyone else at that time. Slaves were considered equal with animals. Slave owners had the right to do whatever they wanted to do to slaves and animals because they were his property. He could decide to kill a slave and it wasn't a capital punishment. It wasn't an offense. Some in the Bible describe themselves as slaves and servants as well. Moses, Joshua, David, all the prophets did. And of course, numerous times, the apostle Paul called himself a bondservant. Today, this is an honorable term spiritually. You and I as Christ followers are duty bound to obey our master, King Jesus, at any cost. We should embrace the term servant as our identity to those people around us as we serve them in the name of Jesus. But he didn't just stop there. He said, I'm a bondservant but I'm also an apostle. 
Second descriptor, apostle. An apostle is officially sent forth by Christ himself as a divinely commissioned witness of the resurrected Lord with the authority to proclaim his truth. We see today some churches call their leaders apostles. But that's really technically not correct because to be an apostle, you would have to have walked on this earth and seen physically Jesus resurrected from the dead. The last apostle that lived was the apostle John, late into the 90s of A.D. Peter himself, in these terms, uses the term servant and apostle, setting forth a pattern of what spiritual leadership should look like. The attitudes and motives as we approach life and serving alongside others for the kingdom. Submissive, having a sacrificial attitude and an anonymity of being a servant, being anonymous. Apostle, having the attitude of dignity, significance, and authority of an apostle. So Peter, from the very beginning, verse 1, sets the tone and the attitude for what we should, as believers, be. Your application here. As Christ followers, we need to have the perfect blend of humility and authority because of who we are in Christ. We're not self-righteous. We're not arrogant. We're humble, but we know with confidence who we are in Jesus Christ. A great balance to strike in our lives. Peter identifies and clarifies who his audience is for in the book of 2 Peter. Who is the audience? He's going to get very specific here. Look at the second part of verse 1 in 2 Peter 1. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So those who are saved just as the disciples were. Just as the disciples were. Who were those specifically referred to here? Well, we go back to 1 Peter 1.1. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. The diaspora. This is when persecution came to the church, the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers in Jerusalem and caused them to scatter. To those who are elected exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Gentile and Jewish believers scattered abroad specifically in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey, as we think of it. Those, he says here, who have obtained or received salvation as a gift. Obtained means to gain by God's divine will or given by allotment. God's choosing however he makes the choice. We don't know how he chooses, but he does. Salvation is not obtained by human effort or worth, but received by God's sovereign and divine purpose. And for you and I, this should fill our hearts with awe and wonder and joy to think that the God of the universe who created us saw us before the foundation of time and chose us to be his children if you know Christ as your personal savior. It's not to become, as I said before, a prideful, self-righteous thing that we're better than anyone else. As I look around the world about us and as my wife and I were talking about there but for the grace of God go I. What would my life be like if I was not a believer in Christ? To follow the natural ways of the sinful nature and desires in my life. God desires for all people to be saved, as we'll see in this book. But man chooses to obey and receive it. 
God gives the faith, the power to be saved, the gift of repentance, the means to be saved. And it is man who obtains or makes it his own. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Let's say these verses together. They're very familiar to us. But let's say it to the Lord together. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Equal standing he says there in Second Peter 1. Or in the King James Version precious faith. Equal privilege, the same salvation that the apostles received. You and I, as Christ followers, we possess that same salvation today. Equal standing means equal in rank, in position, in standing, in price, in honor, and value. Think about it. A foreign citizen who comes to our country, and we've had some in our church who've gone through this process. And they follow all the rules of legal immigration. And over a period of time, over a number of years, they can apply to become a citizen of the United States of America. And when they do, and when they receive that citizenship, guess what? They get all the same rights and privileges of you and I who are native-born American citizens. That's what Jesus, or Peter, is saying here about this salvation. In Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We see that little word, our, in this verse. Our. These are the Jewish and Gentile believers. They're distinct in their culture and ethnicity, but both equally believers in Christ. Take your Bible, turn over to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. While we are equal in our standing before God, we all hold our distinctive differences and our ethnicities and things, but we're all treated as one in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18, Paul says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles, now remember, the Jewish people were not to associate in the Old Testament with Gentile people, the risk of uh, following their pagan gods and all the things involved with that. So they were separated from the, the Gentile people. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, the Jewish believers, which is made in the flesh by hands, which a male was dedicated oftentimes on the eighth day and circumcised in the temple or the synagogues. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, you Gentiles were, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And remember in Isaiah, it says that the gospel will come through the Gentiles to eventually to the Gentiles. But verse 13, a very important but there, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Speaking of the Gentiles, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile believers, and has broken down in the flesh, his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility. You're no longer to separate from those who may become Gentile believers. 
In verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. So the completed Jew, the Messianic Jew, however you want to describe him, and the Gentile who are believers are now united in Christ as one. And so in verse 16, he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We may have our distinctives, we may have our cultural ways of doing things, but we are one and the same with Christ, equal in our standing. The other thing Peter talks about here in verse 1, those who are saved by the co-equal God and Savior Jesus Christ. We see this twice in this chapter where he puts Jesus on the same footing with God by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter affirms at the end of verse 1 and verse 2 that God the Father and Jesus are co-equal members of the Godhead, part of the Trinity, even though the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity, is not mentioned here. Our salvation comes from the Father through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Savior means one who delivers us from trouble or delivers us from an enemy, or in the case of Christ, one who brings salvation. We could call a doctor, a physician, a Savior in a sense where he diagnoses a disease in our body. And he provides through his skills and his learning and his discernment the ability to do his best to bring healing to the body. And when he does that, he is saving that person, hopefully from physical death. We think of a a conqueror who goes and sets people free. Someone who was a tyrant was over these people and enslaved them. And someone who was a conqueror goes and victoriously frees them. So they have the freedom to live their lives. Christ traded our sin for his righteousness. This is called imputed righteousness. It's based in a verse in 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I call the great exchange. It says, for our sake, for our sake, man, God made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Our sins were removed from us in exchange for Christ's righteousness and the ability to live in the way God desires when the Holy Spirit comes in and indwells the hearts of the believer at our point of conversion, our salvation. We were made acceptable in God's sight, but not by anything we did to deserve it. And Paul reminds us it's not based on our righteousness, not based on on following all the commandments, because it's impossible. James says if we break the law at one point, we're guilty of all. Paul said in, in Philippians 3, though I myself have reason to have confidence in my flesh, Also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Notice his pedigree. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. And notice what he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In the Greek, it really means like manure, is what he's saying there. In order that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. In Acts chapter 13, it says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sin is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law was given to show us our sin. It was like a mirror, a mirror of God's perfection. And the challenge was in Matthew 5, he says, Be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Well, guess what? None of us can measure up to that standard. So the law, according to Romans 6, can't save us. But according to Galatians, it's a schoolmaster. It's a tutor to lead us to Christ, to gain the righteousness that he gives to us and that we exchange our sin and place it upon him. So we have to see the complete depravity and sinfulness of our soul and without Christ that we are eternally hopeless. We never can keep all the law to make us righteous. Paul tried, as we read about in Philippians 3, but only through imputed righteousness are we made acceptable to God. So our application is this. As Christ followers, we must never forget, we must never forget our salvation experience. And Peter's going to talk about that later on, verses 9 through 12 in his first chapter. To our discredit, to our peril, if we forget, about the transformation that occurred on that day that we came to faith in Christ. Uh, We will miss out and lose out on a lot of benefits that God has for each and every one of us. I'm going to save the last point because of time for next week. But here is our summary as we close today. Salvation is a gift from God that we have to receive for ourselves. Jesus bore, bore the full anger of God's wrath and anger upon himself as the world's sin was placed on him and he was our substitute. Jesus had all of our sins and the sins of the world placed upon him in exchange for our sin. He not only forgave our sins, but he placed his righteousness upon us. By that great exchange, we are found acceptable in the sight of God. And as he read in Ephesians, we have direct access to the very throne room of God when we pray through the blood and through the name of Jesus Christ. Here's our key thought as we close today. I hope you will take some time this week to stop and reflect. Stop and reflect on all the benefits of our salvation and how we have come this far by faith. To think about the day you came to Christ and where you are today. And think about all that God has done to bring you to where you are today. I want you to ponder, especially this first question, what are some of the benefits of salvation that you are thankful for this week? Let's bow for prayer. And as we pray today, I hope you know Christ is your Savior, but maybe you're here today, and maybe you're not sure that you know Christ. You don't know that if you were to die today and stand before God, that he would invite you into heaven. But you can have that assurance if you come to the place in your heart and life where you say, Dear God, I realize I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for shedding your blood that washes away my sin. And I turn away from my sin and I ask you to come into my heart 
and to be my personal Savior. If you prayed that today, I encourage you to see me out there in the lobby afterward and love to talk with you and give you some more information about how you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you can be on your way to heaven. For those of us who are in this room who know Christ, may we revel, may we be awe-inspired by all that has been done to bring us to this place. As we go out just hundreds of yards outside of our parking lot, there are a lot of people that still don't have this relationship with the Creator. May we share that with others this week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the salvation. That we have the same salvation that the apostles had. The apostles who saw Jesus, who saw him die on the cross, to see him rise again, to see him ascend into heaven, to be a part of the beginning of the church. And Lord, it's exciting that 2,000 years plus later, we are still part of this process that we're adding to church history, that we're continuing on your kingdom work. Lord, help us as we think of that song, Build Your Kingdom, to think about our lives and how each individual person is a piece to the puzzle to fulfill God's work here on this planet. Fill us with joy and awe this week of our salvation. We pray and ask in Jesus' name, amen.